of your eye. Huddled in the darkest shadows of imagination, it waits. Now is the time to face the fear. Welcome to Horror Lasagna. Embrace the trepidation. So, Byzantium, we ready? Yeah. Great. This is like episode three, so we're, we're cruising. Yeah, good. Yeah. Good. Okay. Oh, I didn't pull up my sheet, so hold on. That's fine. I've got like I, five I, tabs running on my second screen, and I've got a book with notes written down on it over <laughs> here. Okay. Well, Reese, welcome. Hi. How you doing? Hey. Have a good weekend? Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty good. Cool. Uh, and we're going to talk about a different story this time. Uh, we are. It is a vampire one, but very untypical. Yes. So um, tell us a little bit about it. So uh, this is Neil Jordan's film, Byzantium. Um, it was released in 2013. Neil Jordan is a director who is, for the wide world, probably best known for the crying game. He's Irish, um, and The Crying Game came out to such great acclaim. Uh, it won all kinds of awards and things. Uh, super cutting edge. It was talking about trans issues uh, back in the 80s. And not in a campy way like uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of thing. Um, and not in a disturbing Silence of the Lambs sociopathic killer kind of way. Like right. as a serious as a serious issue. Um, he's also, well, I don't want to say well-known, but he's also known for his other vampire movie. Which is um, Interview with a Vampire. Really? Yes, he directed that as well. Oh my gosh, because they are so different. There, there's they are. I mean, I was even going to mention interview that Byzantium is not your Anne Rice broody, uh, you know, flashy vampires like Interview with the Vampire, and it's not your Lost Boys action flick. It's something completely different. Correct, and I think. Well, thank um, you. I'm glad I'm right on my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a perfect choice for me because if you look at Jordan's work, he spans both what I hate about vampires in interview with the vampire and what I love about, uh, these niche vampire movies like Byzantium. Right. So, um, as far as how it was, it's, uh, you know, um, classified, it's, it's kind of an art house film. It's kind of Gothic in its nature. Yes. Uh, it is a vampire movie. Um, it was Irish it, it, funded. Oh, oh I'm really? Sorry. Yeah. Okay. No, as you used to say, it's definitely more um, uh, a set piece and brooding than a vampire story. In fact, I think if you clock the amount of vampire activities, it's maybe like two minutes in the whole movie. It's, it's, it's very brief. Minimal. Yeah. But because it doesn't need it, you know what's going on. It's more about uh, the the girls, their relationship, and the you know everything else. But it the vampire is almost not the story. You, you know what yeah. I'm saying? It's yeah. Um, 
It's a period piece as well. I mean, it takes yeah. place in the modern era, but there's lots of flashbacks. And the flashbacks are done, you know, like with all of the weight of a typical period piece with costuming and everything. I mean, they're, they're not just slapping on, you know, a powdered wig and going, oh, governor, and, you know, moving on from there. They're like actually wearing the whole, the whole get. Yeah. Out of the movies we've watched, this is the first Hollywood produced big budget type movie. It felt like that. The scenes, the way it was shot, the way it looked, it it flowed to me, it, it, you know, it looked more like we had uh, 50 different crews going out and filming and we took three years in story, you know, that typical Hollywood type thing. That's what this felt like more than the other ones so far. Yeah, it was shot in um, England. The whole thing was shot in England. Um, and the reason I think that it was Irish funded is because Neil Jordan is like an Irish icon in Ireland. Um, Radio Telefisheren is the is kind of like the BBC, you know, that's the nationalized film industry for Ireland, and they gave him a grant for this. The movie cost eight million to produce, so it was an eight million budgeted film. It grossed worldwide about eight hundred and twenty-eight thousand dollars. Ouch! And yeah. that's which I can see. I mean, it's not your summer blockbuster popcorn movie. Um, but the weird thing is, with all that budget. I was even going to mention this, the special effects are minimal. It's almost all practical effects and there's nothing outrageous. There's not tons of anything for a special effect in there. Right. Uh, There's CGI guys went broke working on this film because (laughs) there was really nothing for them to do. Uh, The movie really addresses uh, a lot in the way um, of topics of feminism and uh, classism. Um, And it speaks to it pretty heavily throughout the whole movie. And I think um, for me, the ending of the movie is it's Achilles heel. It's the part that I don't like. And it's because of all of the work that they had done in the beginning. I think they throw it away at the end and we'll get to that. Um, Yeah. And I I would agree. It almost felt like the end was the directors said, or the executives said, Hey, do this because what we just said about, it's not your typical vampire movie with the class uh, themes and the feminist themes. That's the story. It just happens to be their vampires. So right. it's almost a, an aside at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The vampire is just the vehicle to get the message across. Right. Which makes uh, good stories. Oh yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, I think it's a vis- very visually striking film. Yeah. Um, they don't, they're not desaturating anything. The colors are there. They're vivid. The direction is very well done. Um, and the scenery is, I know it, it sounds odd to be talking about an urban environment or kind of a, a blighted rundown seaside town is like beautiful, but the way it's shot, it is. Um, this was based on a play by an English really? playwright. Yeah. Wow. Um, because usually you can tell when a movie was based on play because it's very much structured like the play. This did yes. not feel like that to me. Well, and I think the reason is her name was Maura Buffini. Um, she is uh, English, and the play was called A Vampire Story. She was brilliantly hired on by Neil Jordan to do the screenplay. So she adapted her own play for the nice. movie. And I think that's nice. probably why it worked out so well, it, you know, in I, my I humble believe. opinion. 
Um, so the storyline to this movie, um, I'm going to kind of do it in, in two sections. I'm going to tell you what happens in real life and what happens in the flashbacks. And in the movie, they disperse it throughout the whole thing. So you see part of modern life and then you see a flashback and then you see part of modern life and a flashback, you know, for pacing and things, but it's confusing. So instead, I think we'll just go through and um, tell it. And then when we get to a spot, we'll stick in all the flashbacks and then we'll go back and finish the thing. That sounds all right. That's perfect. Uh, The movie opens. I didn't even mention who's in it. Uh, Saoirse Ronan's in it. Uh, An 18-year-old Saoirse Ronan who's best known for um, Lady Bird which was okay. a critically acclaimed film that came out recently. Uh, she's in it and she plays a teenage girl and it's, I don't want to say it's a comedy. It's kind of funny, but it's, it's a slice of life. It's her and her mother during these trauma traumatized years of, you know, becoming an adult and the conflict between the two. That's what the whole movie was about, but it was very critically well received. She's also in one of my favorite movies. That's, on my list of movies, that's not a horror movie. Some of them do show up. Uh, it was her 13-year-old debut called Hannah. Have you seen Hannah? Oh, yeah. That was her? I didn't that was recognize her. her. Yep. Yeah, oh, give her blonde okay. hair and take five years off her. She looks completely different. Wow. Wow, yeah. I didn't even recognize her. But now that you say it, I can see it with the, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that so was, she, was a good movie. Yes. She plays Eleanor. And the movie opens with Eleanor. Um, she's wearing modern day clothes, sitting at a desk in what looks like a shabby apartment next to a window. But as soon as she puts her pen down to write into her journal, you know something's different because she's writing in a script that no no modern adults use, much yeah, less. It's like the Declaration of Independence. Absolutely. And I, I believe she writes the end. Yes. Those are the words she writes. Then she takes this book and walks out onto a balcony and starts to rip the pages out of the book, crumple them up and toss them over the balcony. So she's basically finished writing a story and she is disassembling it and scattering it to the winds. Um, While she is doing this, an older gentleman's walking along. Uh, He's got a walker. He stops, bends down and picks up the paper and unfolds it and looks up and sees her and she sees him see her and she proceeds to come downstairs to talk to him then you get a cut to um gemma adderton who is playing clara and clara is dancing in an exotic bar she's giving some guy a lap dance she's very good at it um she as an actress uh gemma adderton is in a lot of movies that i haven't seen uh, because she does a lot of theatrical type films. Okay. Yeah. I didn't recognize her. Right. Uh, she was a bond girl, I think in quantum solace. Really? Yeah. I Man, think that's I, the one. True. Okay. I'll have to go look that up now. But, uh, yeah. So she kind of reminds me as an English version of Catherine Zeta Jones when she was younger. I could see. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Uh, So she's dancing for this guy. The guy gets handsy. 
security comes to break them up and she steals his wallet. She tries oh. to get away stealing his wallet. And, and she turns around and his nose is uh, bleeding a lot. So um, she definitely knows how to defend herself from this kind of situation. So we're going to go ahead and talk about what happens with Clara. And if you're the, the Anne Rice uber sexy type of vampire, that was your scene. That's about as much as you get because there's not a whole lot more of that type of vampire sexiness. Yeah, absolutely. There are, um, there are two scenes involving nudity. Um, and they're very brief and neither one of them involve either of these ladies. Uh, Eleanor is a vampire. Clara is a vampire. And, um, we're about to find those out. So again, with pacing, they would cut between the two, but in order to make things clearer, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you Clara's first part of the story here. Um, she goes back to collect her money because their boss is firing her for assaulting this guy. Um, he refuses to pay her, says that she's not on the book. So how could he pay her? So she goes to the bar where she's going to steal some money. While she's at the bar, this tall, blonde guy comes in, very creepy, with an old black and white photograph, looks like it might be from the 40s, and he's showing it around, asking people if they've seen this woman, and it's a picture of Clara. And of course, as is code, in a place like that, no one has seen anything. They're all (laughs) like, no, we don't know who that is. He shows it to the bartender, who even says, no, I don't know who that is. And instantly after she's done with that, the bartender goes to confront Clara, who is stealing money out of the cash register. Yeah, the bartender wasn't very convincing, though. (laughs) No, no, not a whole lot. (laughs) Now, of course, blonde hair guy sees this happening, comes behind the bar, um, sees Clara. Clara sees him, and she smacks him in the head with a bottle of liquor and runs. So she is running. Through the streets of, it's supposed to be London. It was actually East Sussex, but it was supposed to be London. Americans don't know. Yeah. She's running through this crowd uh, in a teddy with a coat over top of it and like long heels. And she's, she's making time. She is moving. <laughs> yeah. And this guy chases after her and, and, you know, they're cutting in and out of buildings. There's the whole chase tension. They end up on a roof. She walks over to a skylight on the roof because she's got nowhere else to go. She jumps on the skylight and crashes through onto a bounce house below. The guy jumps through the hole, lands on the bounce house, and puts her in a headlock and asks, where's the girl? And so now, at this point, we get the feeling that this woman must have something to do with the girl we saw writing the book earlier. Um, so Clara takes this gentleman back to her apartment. Um, she's very, um, obsequious about it. She's apologizing. She's calling him, sir. Um, he's being kind of a douche as you know, these kind of guys will be, I'm sure. And, um, so she goes to leave the room and he's like, where are you going? And she's like, oh, you're cut. And that'll draw attention. So let me clean it up. So he follows her and he follows her back and she goes into the bathroom 
to get the cleaning stuff. And he says to her, and this is one of the reasons why I love this film. He says to her, all the time you've had, and you've got nothing. Because one of my problems with vampire movies is that there's this giant secret society of incredibly wealthy, large living uh, human predators under the radar and nobody knows they're there. And, you know, for some reason they've managed to be successful for generations. And I, I just hate that. It's so improbable to me. I can't buy into it. Well, this movie definitely isn't that this movie is not that. Um, and there's a reason for it, which we'll get to in a second. She comes out of the bathroom with like alcohol and some bandages and her one hand's behind her back, which should raise some alarms. Um, he sits in the chair and she tells him to close his eyes. And I don't really think that was even necessary. <laughs> no, but <laughs> but it points out how her attitude changed and she was con- completely in control and manipulating him. And yes. the, all of this shows uh, the, you know, she's a confusing character at this point because she's stripping at a club dancing and then she tries to steal something okay that seems typical but then she gets in this fight being chased and this guy's looking for her and she's running and she jumps through a skylight it's like holy crap you know she she's like really you know going for it not just running and screaming and then she does what comes next and she, but this whole time she's like you know very subservient to him and yeah. he totally falls for it so it really shows her character all over the place and you start to wonder a little bit, you know, what, what is she exactly? I mean, obviously we know she's a vampire, but she's got a lot going for her. Yes. The guy completely lowers his guard and closes his eyes. And then she produces a garret and basically she slices his head right off his shoulders. Yep. There you go. She Probably then the soaks- most gratuitous violence scene in the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, she soaks the apartment in gasoline and lights it on fire. Um, which I would like to point out is very inconsiderate to everyone else living in your apartment building. Right. But you know. So again, she, you know, that's another part of her. She didn't care, uh, you know, about any of the people at the strip club, the guy she was right. dancing to, the people whose money she tried to take this guy, the other apartment, she didn't care. Yes. That's an actually important aspect of her character. It is. So Clara, that's Clara. And you might be wondering where's Eleanor this whole time. Um, she strikes up a conversation with the old gentleman who invites her back to his apartment. And before you start thinking, Ooh, I don't like where this is going. It's not that at all. Right. Um, they have an interesting conversation before that on the steps that he, he, he looks like he's looking into her soul. Like he's like, I I know who you are. It very, I mean, he drops some very big hints, not weird connotation sexual stuff at all it's just very big uh, i see you type thing yeah and you come to find out why um they're sitting in the apartment he's got this uh photo album and he's showing these pictures and there's this woman he loved and i'm sure there's uh you know i'm sure there's a film critic out there who could tell me the the whole meaning of this but he goes into this story about this woman that he loved and it wasn't his wife it was his brother's wife and she never knew and i'm just like fascinating but you know that's like just a pruned branch right there it was this little story it's over now so it was story within 
Um, but he's been collecting her pages from her stories as she's been throwing them out. And he is tired of living. He's old. All his friends are gone. And um, he's basically asking her to kill him. He doesn't even call her Angel of Mercy or something like that. Yes. And I think the whole story, what I got from that, that he tells, is that I, I, the way I took it and understood it is that recently this woman he had pined over for his, literally his whole life had passed away. So to him, there was no reason to continue living. The wife he did have is gone, and this other lady that he had pined for is gone. There's nothing left in life for him. Yeah, motive. I can see that. Nicely done. Um, so she um, acquiesces to his demands. Uh, she has a thumbnail that grows rapidly and crazy sharp. It looks like a guitar pick that's strapped to her, her thing. She pulls his arm over and punctures his um, vein in his, uh, his artery in his wrist and then proceeds to suck the blood out of his wrist. Which and, is and that's... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it's probably the most disturbing scene in the movie for me. 18-year-old Saoirse Ronan sucking on some old guy's wrist. Yeah. I don't know. I I think it it was to be a little uncomfortable, but there's a reason she's doing it with him. Um, And the whole thing, a lot of the standard vampire tropes are gone. They're not here. Right. Uh, And that's the first one. She's not sinking her fangs into his throat in this big dramatic, you know, Bella Lugosi scene. She pokes his wrist and just sucks the blood. And even when she brings her head up after she sucks him dry, there's very little blood. You know, there's always right. that blood all over the place. It's not yes. like that at all. It's no. neat. She's and very concise. efficient. Yeah. No But waste. I found it interesting, though, after Clara cut off that guy's head, she didn't drink any of the blood. So no. I thought that was interesting. Um, And this... Right here in this early part of the movie, they define their roles as vampires. Um, um, Eleanor sees herself as some sort of beneficial angel of death. When she needs to feed, which we see later in the film, she will find someone who is older and wants to die. And somehow they recognize her as that. Um, So she's she's not taking victims as much as she's helping people along. Yeah, she's, you know, what was Kevorkian. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Clara, on the other hand, sees her, um, number one, as Eleanor's protector. Um, but number two, um, she also sees herself as somebody who is purging the world of horrible people. And that's her job. In her eyes, that's what she's here for. Um, number one, so she's, protect- she's- still almost an angel of mercy and death just another side of it so they're you know closely linked they just have different viewpoints of how they go about it and what they think is worthwhile in that regard yeah um so it turns out that clara is eleanor's mother um and we'll get to the flashbacks here in a second where they define everything, everyone's role in things. But, um, Clara turns out to be, uh, Eleanor's mother. And as they're leaving, uh, cause Eleanor leaves the guy's apartment, goes to go back to hers, sees what's happened and like lays into Clara. She liked it here. She wanted to stay here. Um, you know, 
what's the problem? Why do we have to leave? And Clara doesn't even really take the time to to explain. She's just like, we've got to go now. She's very upset. Yeah. Very much so. So they start by hitchhiking. Again, this is not Count Dracula in his carriage with six coaches and, and you know, a whole entourage of, of luggage and things. This is like two girls just thumbing a ride out on the road. Right. And it's also important to note, they look like they're only a couple years apart. Right. Uh, which is, because then they introduce themselves as sisters through most of the movie. Yes. And that actually turns out to be one of the ambiguous things from the play. Um, when Moira had written the play, you, I, cause I read a critic's review of it. Um, you go through the entire play and at the end, he's like, she says she's her mom, but I left the theater wondering if they're sisters instead. Um, so there was no real clarification in the, in the stage play here. Got there it. is. I yeah, mean, yeah. when they go, when they do the flashbacks, they clearly, you know, define who's who. Um, and I have two musical notes about this and they come up right now and they're back to back, which is really strange to me, but they're back to back. The first is they, this guy in the semi truck pulls over and they climb into the semi truck and they he pulls out. And as they're pulling out, um, Clara trying to make Eleanor feel better, starts to sing a song, a British folk song. And eventually Eleanor joins her and, you know, puts her head on her shoulder and they seem like to have worked out, hey, you burnt down my apartment. They seem to be past that now. The song she's singing um, is called Mother's Lament. Um, and it's a song, it's, it's a silly little song about a poor mother who had a house full of kids and she goes to wash the baby and he's super skinny and she turns around to grab the soap and he slips down the drain. And dies. <laughs> and his life's better because he's hanging out with the angels now. Um, the only reason I know that is because uh, the band in the late 60s Cream, at the end of Disraeli Gears, their their huge breakthrough album, they did a recording of this song. Oh, so I know it by heart. I mean, I, I know all the lyrics. That. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Um, but I think it it it's really, it plays to a theme in the film in that, you know, it's the mother's lament. You have this mother who's wringing her hands over, you know, what happened to my baby boy. And here you have Eleanor just completed. I mean, you have Clara who's just committed this horribly violent act. um, And she did it to protect her baby girl. Um, So the truck drops. They definitely, this and the other, there's another one that they definitely use to good effect to help promote, you know, proceed the story along and to help set the roles. I mean, it was a very well-chosen song along with the other ones that sing later. Um, so the guy drops them off. They kind of walk across a field. They're kind of, you know, they're roughing it. They're just making their way and they end up at a seaside town and Clara is like, this looks like it'll do. And Eleanor instantly starts having flashbacks of um, you see like girls in like 1800s habits walking along the beach. And she's like watching them. She's like, I've been here before. Now a song's playing 
behind this as well. And it goes from that into kind of a flashback scene. But the song that's playing is Coventry Carol. And it is an ancient Christian hymn that deals with the massacre of the innocents as told in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. And if, if you know, for all the people who aren't familiar, um, King Herod was in charge of Jerusalem and Israel. And when Jesus was born, these three wise men from some far, from far kingdoms came this long distance to present him with gifts. And when they went to leave, Herod stopped them, had them brought to his court. And he's like, what are you doing here? And they're like, the king of the Jews has been born. What are you talking about? That's what we're here for. And then they left. Herod, in his infinite wisdom, decides to protect his throne. He is going to order the massacre of all boys that are like under two years of age throughout the entire kingdom. Um, Now, Joseph and Mary and Jesus had left by then, so they weren't even in the place that this was happening. But, um, you know, it took place. And this hymn, this is the central theme of this hymn. And it's kind of like, uh, it goes through and it's like, you know, Jesus was great and, you know, thank God for all of this. But, you know, all you poor kids who died during the Massacre of the Innocents, (laughs) that was rough on you. (laughs) What a way to sum it up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was beautifully done. Yeah. that's. That's the that's the whole feel of the song, and and when she sees, we we know this is a flashback, or we should, you know, figure it out because she sees herself marching right. with the girls, right? And this is also the first scene I noticed that there's a lot of red brought out in the scenes. That it's in the background, it's just the splash of color. That there's a lot of somber neutral tones, but then you'll see one thing that's red. In, yep. in the scene quite often it started popping out to me absolutely um so while they're there um clara goes to, finds they're just walking through this seaside amusement park and clara spies prostitutes and like their pimp um and she's like huh i can do business here apparently So she tells Eleanor to go and enjoy herself. You know, just go run around this strange town at night while I conduct some business here. This, now we'll start talking about the flashbacks, the past history, because this is where things start to tie together. Um, Clara at one time was a young girl living at the seaside. And um, impoverished kids, at that time, uh, if you lived near the sea, could go down to the sea and they would rake through the flotsam and the jetsam and see if there was anything they could get that they could sell. There's a particular food that they have in England, which we don't eat here. It's called cockles. And cockles are really just little tiny shellfish. I mean, they're like clams. Um, and these guys put it on toast. Uh, they come pickled in a jar. I, I have relatives from England, and you know they love this stuff. They've brought they've brought us some. Not a fan myself. <laughs> uh, 
But Claire is out there raking through the surf, looking for stuff. And this very handsome man in a uh, Navy shipman's costume of, and they say this happened around the Napoleonic Wars. So that lets you know roughly the kind of outfit he's wearing. He shows up and asks her if uh, she hands him one of these. And he asks her if they're sweet. It's got these kind of creepy sexual overtones because Clara looks like she might be 14 at the time. Um, He eats it and then gives her a pearl. And he hands her this pearl. His name is Darvell. And it kind of solidifies him as he's the good guy. Plus, now not- the pearl, he, that with this, what you were saying, the connotations, innuendos, you know, he's giving this girl he thinks is a pearl, the pearl. It, it helped clarify that quite, quite Yes. Much. Yes. Then another Navy guy comes up on horseback, which automatically tells you he's a higher status than Darvell. He is Captain Ruthven. And he asks if she wants to take a ride. And, um, Darvell says, don't go with him, but she does anyways. And is, as so was the kind of thing that would happen back then. You have this young, poor girl out there scrimping for whatever money she can get or food or sustenance. He just takes her to a whorehouse, um, rapes her, and basically forces her into prostitution for the madam of the house. Yep. And um, when she says something like, you've just taken and left me with nothing he flips her a coin and says i've given you a career like hey (laughs) you should be thanking me so chivalrous yes um so she goes ahead and she lives her life in this uh in this brothel um and uh captain ruthven becomes like a regular whenever he's in town he comes and sees her at some point in time, she ends up pregnant with children, with a child. And um, there's a rule at the time that you're not allowed to have a child in the brothel in this particular one. And Eleanor actually references this. At one point, she, she says, once upon a time I was born, and it's still a fact that the day you were born is the day you're most likely to be murdered. Most human souls are killed by their mother's hands, then by the hands of strangers. My mother tried to murder me, but love confounded her. And that's exactly what happened. She was holding the baby. The madam of the brothel's like, you can't have that thing here. And she's looking at the baby, and she just falls in love with Eleanor, baby Eleanor, and decides to give her up for adoption to the local church. And that's, you know, the theme with Clara, the whole movie, her Main motivation is uh, helping her daughter to. It, it may get twisted a little bit at times, you oh, yeah. know, after so long being a vampire. But that's her whole motivation: is protecting her daughter, taking care of her daughter, making sure her daughter has a a good life. <laughs> yeah. How do you define that in this case? Right. But you know, now Claire is still human at this point in time. So she drops Eleanor off at the church and says, "As long as." I'll come back every month and check in on her. And as long as she's alive, I'll drop off gold for the church. You guys can do whatever. Just keep my baby alive. And she would come at night and climb up to the orphanage and look in through a window and see, you know, just check in to make sure she was there. Um, 
along the way, she ends up getting sick because, believe it or not, the healthcare in seaside brothels in um, 17th or 18th century England was not great. Yeah, but they, they didn't like vaccines, so. No, no, not so much. And, you know, it's hard to vaccinate against tuberculosis, which is what it looks like she yes, has. That's what I thought it was, too. Yeah, she's uh, coughing up blood. And um, there's a, another important thing. All uh, you, you were probably about to say the same thing, maybe. But the disease is a very blood-based disease. Yep. Now, the good captain comes to see her and no matter how sick she is she still performs her duties because she still needs to be paid so um captain ruthven comes back and you can see he's got like lesions on his face now from visiting one too many brothels he is obviously in later stages of syphilitic of syphilitic disease so his mind might not even be working properly anymore uh he's probably spread this disease far and wide he's just they basically took the man and put the outside of him to be as ugly as the inside of him was. Plus, he probably is passing this on, so becoming a vampire probably actually saves them, along with the tuberculosis. Correct. Darvell shows up at the um, brothel, uh, and he asks Claire if she remembers him, and she does. But um, Captain Ruthven seems very upset by seeing him, and it turns out that uh, he was injured, and he was dying, and ran into some, yeah, Darvell, ran into some guys who knew of this place. They had this guy who knew of a place where... <laughs> Stay, kid, come here. Yeah. Uh, so it's basically uh, like a sheltered cave. On the side of the sea, you walk in. It's hard to get to. You walk in, and um, it appears that you die. But you end up being cured of all the disease. This is what Darvell hears. He shows up, goes down, apparently dies, and Captain Ruthven comes down and basically robs his body, loots his body, and then hightails it out of there. Yeah, he doesn't just die. He's, like, covered in blood. Yes. And I must say the, the, the part in the movie where he goes, fetch us some water. And like, uh, Ruthven walks like, you know, 300 miles to, and they're right by waterfalls. And I'm like, what? And he turns his back to get the water. And I'm like, that was like the worst, uh, you know, filmed scene in the whole movie, in my opinion. Yeah. So, um, this is why Ruthven's very surprised to see Darvell. He's convinced he's dead. And he, you know, so when Darvell's there, he starts giving him his stuff back. He's like, oh, I was just hanging on to this for you. I wasn't going to take it on this. Darvell sees that Ruthven's, uh, Darvell sees that Ruthven is in bad shape. And so he um, plans on giving him this map on how to get to this place. Clara steals the map. And she does so. Does she shoot? Ruffin in the leg? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Shoots him in the leg, grabs the map, and hightails it out of there. And she goes herself to this abandoned cave, walks down the cave, and sees a replica of herself. And the replica proceeds to kill her. And then all of the waterfalls in the island start running red. Yeah. 
that that was the most uh uh artsy you know scene uh yeah it was like a little over the top yeah in my opinion you we got it uh it but, does raise but, oh, go ahead it raises the question for me are they actually being turned into vampires or is something else just taking their form and their memories and leaving that yes and that's a good question because unlike most movies where you'd see the number one ancient vampire that's all powerful that's the most hideous looking is the strong you know you'd see one of those and there'd be a big scene with him changing them to a vampire no <laughs> it's it's uh we're not going to show this to you but hopefully you're smart enough to figure it out yeah and that's exactly what it is yeah so it it I, I like the ambiguity of are they vampires or is this like this could be an alien race that yeah. you know is just like hanging out in this place looking for some sort of corporeal form to take over and because it's this one place it gets treated almost religiously yeah uh, you know there's some and with her being in the convent you know there's a lot of religious overtones of this too because the 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 guys in this it's it is like a religion it's a very secretive religion in, in yes. many ways and she finds out all about it because they hunt her down the existing vampires hunt her down and bring her back and um there is a vampire a very distinct looking vampire there uh his name is Savella although i don't know if they ever say it in the movie it's just listed on the cast sheet as Savella, played by Yuri Gavriel. And he seems to be all in for, we should just end this abomination and kill her now. There's never been a woman vampire, ever. Oh and Darvell, God, how could we think of that? <laughs> right. Much less one of low birth. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what did she do? She was a harlot. Oh, we don't want anything <laughs> to do with them. Right. Darvell makes the case for her. And so they're like, fine, you can, we won't kill you, but you have to follow our rules. And, um, and we don't want to see you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Get out of our sight. You abomination. Right. <laughs> but we don't just don't break any of our rules. She ends up breaking one of the rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably cutting a guy's head off. And that guy we've seen. Yeah. He, yes. The guy whose head was removed was there with Savella when she was presented to them. She goes back to check on her daughter. And she's not the only one who goes back to check on her daughter. Um, Captain Ruthven goes back to check on Eleanor as well and um, proceeds to rape her there in the convent. And that seems to be okay with, you know, the nuns because she's an orphan girl. He's a high-bred captain. He's obviously, he knows what he's doing. Um, but it's not okay with Clara, who sees it happen. Um, and Clara comes rushing in and kills him. Very, very violently, like we've already yeah. seen her do. I mean, she's, yeah. and again, it's that theme, protecting her daughter at all costs. Yep. And Ruffin's whole thing was, I mean, it wasn't even like he was lusting after Eleanor. He didn't know he, she existed. He knew that Clara stole something from her. And so he was going to steal Eleanor from Clara, basically by giving her syphilis, just by, in, in, you know, giving her this horrific disease while she's so young. Um, Clara's not going to let that stand. She takes young Eleanor with her. 
to the sacred place on the rocks and proceeds to turn her into a vampire. And that's when she breaks their rules because she is permitted to do that. Which again, we see the reflection of Eleanor. Yes. uh, In there. Yes. So they've been on the run from this vampire consortium ever since. 200 years. For 200 years. Now we go back to the future. All, all of these flashbacks happened in little cuts throughout, like I said, to break pacing and things. We go, back to the fu- we go back to the modern times, and now we understand why Clara, when she's walking, she happens to know where you can find a prostitute. <laughs> because she was one for so long. And she's, you get the feeling that this is something she does to supplement their income because they don't have tons of um, inherited wealth squirreled away somewhere that they can live off of. So she's going to, uh, she gets some John, this kind of guy, glasses, kind of clumsy looking, and they head in into like some lit up back part of some ride or something well that's where she's at with the the other uh pimp they're at an abandoned amusement park it looks like. right and she's in the, the one of those game booths with a lot of flashing lights and the the ones that were kind of focused on behind her were red i noticed <laughs> yeah yeah with the whole vampire theme and all yeah um so uh you know, she like gives the guy the price list. He gets this money out. Um, his name's Noel. He then proceeds to break down because his mother's just died. Uh, he owes a lot of bills. She had this whole hotel that she used to run and he's not doing a good job of it. And he's just a lost soul. And she hears hotel and no mother and lost soul. And she's like, I can work with this. Yeah, she's like, no, you're going to take care of me now. And so they leave together. And she doesn't even see her her manipulation coming out again. She's very, you know, changed attitude. While she was doing this, Eleanor was in town looking for stuff to do. And she's walking past a window of, I don't know, like an old folks home. I thought it was a restaurant. At first I did too, but everyone in there is old. Which makes me think okay. it's kind of a posh retirement community kind of thing where they like have waiters and things that come by and see if you need drinks or whatever. But there's a grand piano in there. And um, Eleanor walks in off the street, sits down at the piano and starts playing Beethoven. Beautifully. Beautifully. Um, fun fact, Cisha Ronan did not know how to play piano when she took that took that gig. She learned how to play all of her piano parts in 12 weeks just by muscle rote memory. Oh, wow. That's now I'm very impressed by that. That's yeah. I know how hard that is. Yeah. This, a uh, very sickly looking waiter guy comes over. His name's Frank. And, uh, he's like trying to very awkwardly hit on her. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like the awkward and the hopeless meeting each other because neither one of them know how to do this right um he asks if she uh in england oh not just england a lot of places you have this whole culture of busking where people just show up put a hat down start playing music people throw money in the hat like new orleans yeah um so he asks if you know if she's got a hat to pass and she's like i don't have a hat and then she runs away 
Um, she's hanging out at the seaside a little later, and Frank shows up, and he's got money for her. He passed around a teacup. And there's some more very awkward flirtation, and she's like, no, we're done talking. And she leaves. And poor Frank just looks so dejected. Um, Clara finds her with Noel. And she's like, look, this is Noel. He's going to rescue us. He's our knight in shining armor. And they go to the hotel, and it is called the Byzantium. Yes. Um, And this is where they're going to live. So that's the first Byzantium reference that I picked up. There's one later I wanted to ask you about, so we'll get to that. To the best of my knowledge, there are just those two. Okay, okay. And the the second one wasn't even real clear. We'll, that's, no. we'll get to that in a bit. Yeah, we will. Um, <laughs> so... I'm going through my notes, seeing where I where I want to pick up from. Um, Clara's Clara's idea is this is a lovely place. Noel's easily manipulated. I can easily set up a brothel here. And um, so she heads back to the fairgrounds, um, seduces the pimp. Uh, who's running all of these girls working there in the streets. He's, he's running them by paying them basically in drugs. Uh, she gets him to an isolated part of the, of the beach. Um, and, you know, he's thinking he's going to have a great time. And then she proceeds to feed off of him. And uh, she says, the world will be more beautiful, beautiful without you, which I think perfectly encapsulates how Clara sees her role in the world. Right. To find these malignant tumors of society and to excise them herself on occasions. But she turns around and does the same thing he was doing. But she does treat the girls better than he was. She does. She runs into one of the girls who's coming down off of her high. And the girl's like, oh, I want to just kill me. And, and Claire's like, not today. Now, tomorrow, if you feel like it, I can help you out. But not <laughs> right. today. And so she brings these girls back to the apartment, back to the Byzantium, and proceeds to just basically run it like a brothel. Guys come in, pay for a good time with the girls, they go upstairs. The odd thing that I found, and I guess it's not odd, but Eleanor decides she wants to go to school. And so she's walking along one day on the sidewalk, and as she's walking along, I don't know, she stepped into traffic or what? I mean, not like dangerously, but Frank happens to be going by on a bicycle, swerves to miss her, hits something, falls over, and cuts his arm. And blood just gushes everywhere. And seeing the guy being so sickly and the vast amount of blood, you know he's not right health-wise. She feels responsible. She grabs his bicycle. She helps him uh, go back to the house. But not only does she feel responsible, she's lured in by the blood, which you see in the end when she gets to the house, meets his parents and they rush him to the hospital. It turns out he has leukemia. He's on blood thinners. So they got to get him to the hospital right away. He leaves and drops this bloody rag and she picks the rag up off the porch and proceeds to like slurp the blood out of it. Yeah. And yeah. she gets the big old talon coming. 
out of her thumb, which yeah. seems to be like an involuntary thing. It just when you're they hungry, do that more than showing bangs and stuff. Yeah, and, and I was going to mention too. It's interesting that these two women are about 216 and like 230 years old. <laughs> you yeah. know, they're they're very close in age, but they're like over 200 years old. Yet they still fall into the same. Uh, structure of I'm the mother. I'm going to take care of you and get a job. You go play. And she wants to go to school. And, and I I find that a little weird. Or maybe it's even saying you know even though they're vampires and they're immortal, emotionally they don't mature anymore. They don't grow from that point. Uh, right. Not just physically. That's kind of yeah. how I took it because it seemed odd. I did too. Mentality and emotionality ceases to mature just as the body did when it happened. Right. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting take on vampires because a lot of play, uh, interview with a vampire, they had the little girl vampire, you know, or, um, if you're playing Skyrim, uh, the assassins guild has a little, little girl vampire who she's, she knows she looks like a little girl. She uses it as a lure to get people, but she's not like in her head, a little girl. She's right. So it sounds like, uh, Scotty Young's I hate fairyland. Yeah, okay. Um, Eleanor comes back to the house. The prostitutes give her a little bit of grief, you know, kind of making fun of her. Um, and Clara basically comes out and says, you do that again and you're just out on your ass. I won't have that in this house. This is my sister. She's nothing to do with any of this. Super protective. Um, Clara goes to see Frank in the hospital. He's sleeping. Frank's mom shows up. Um, and she's like, well, don't tell him I was here. I just wanted to see how he's doing. And she leaves. And that's another difference between a lot of vampires. They have feelings. They care. Right, Eleanor they really cares. Uh, Clara cares about Eleanor, not so much everybody else. Yep. And as Eleanor's leaving, all the blood in the area starts to make her kind of jonesing. And she can, again, that weird angel of death thing. She can sense there's this patient who's ready to go. She goes into the room. The patient's there. The patient's like, are you here for me? She's like, I am. Peace be with you. And uh, proceeds to feed on the lady. The whole time this is happening, uh, you see uh, Savella and Darnet Darvell. They're dressed as like G-men, like investigators. And they're going to first the apartment where the beheaded guy is. And then they go down to the apartment downstairs where the guy where uh, Eleanor suck the guy's wrist out. And so they're like, they're chasing after they're narrowing them down. Now uh, I have a question there. Yeah. Why were they wearing the masks? I couldn't figure out exactly why I understand there. One was burnt, but like the old man, you know, they, they, they but they wore masks. And once they looked around a bit, they you know, took it off. But initially they were, maybe it was to cover up their face for other people. Uh, just because it was an investigation crime scene. I, I wasn't sure, but it was interesting that, uh, you know, it, it stuck out to me. So sometimes uh, when I'm watching foreign films, there'll be cultural references that happen that I don't get. That could be. And it, it might be one of those things they're posing as policemen, maybe like the CSI teams in Britain show up at a crime scene wearing masks. Yeah. You know, it, I, it was interesting. So. Yeah. Um. Frank gets out of the hospital. 
Uh, and Frank and Eleanor happen to be in, it uh, seems like a creative writing course. And it's not like, you know, write this and bring it back. It's like, lie on the floor, <laughs> close your eyes. And you get the feeling that the professor even thinks, what a load of crap this is. Yeah, he, he came across a little bit of stuck on himself that I'm too good to be doing this, but I have to. Yeah. And, and Frank tells this story, which is really interesting, about David Atkinson. When he was a kid, he, he didn't have any friends because he was sick. Um, and it turns out he's, a, he's, a, he's an expat. He, he was American. And they yes. left America because his dad's American, his mom's British. They left America to come to England because England has universal health care. And he had a horribly expensive disease. And so he is out of, out of, away from home in a way. But while he was there, he was ill and he didn't have any friends. So he had this imaginary friend named David Atkinson. And it turns out David Atkinson was the name of a boy who used to live in the house and had died. The teacher's like literally rolling his eyes. He's like, great story, Frank. (laughs) Okay, people, here's your assignment. But I think it's really interesting that uh, Frank has this ability to see the dead and the person that he's stuck on, this one girl that we ever see him interact with, happens to be dead. Well, again, they've never clarified that exactly. Uh, I mean, they kind of did with Darvell, uh, you know, we went with the undead thing, but you know, it, it definitely was, is a lot more ambiguous in this movie. Yeah. And, and the other thing I find interesting is his parents uh, did just about anything to take care of him, which is what Clara is doing with Eleanor. So they have right. that similarity and yeah, you know, he, he sees paranormal something and he pokes up with the one paranormal girl in the whole freaking town. Yes. Who just so happens to have recently moved in. Um, he invites her to ours, to his birthday party. and. Here we have we have these two conflicting things that aren't really in conflict. They want to be in conflict, but they don't even want to. They feel they have to be in conflict because Frank wants nothing more than to be completely 110% in Eleanor's life. And Eleanor wants nothing more than to be able to tell someone her tale, just to be able to talk it, get it off her chest, the catharsis of actually being able to tell somebody, but she knows Clara has said, and we don't hear Clara say it until later, but Clara has told her in the past, knowledge means death. If people know who we are, we must kill them. So she is super reluctant to do this. And the kid, I mean, these two paths are just, you know, they're going along parallel like this and they want to touch, but there's this whole, Clara's going to kill you if she finds out. Um. So what Eleanor decides to do is she writes her story like she always has, but instead of throwing it away, she gives it to Frank to let him read. Frank thinks the story's made up. He thinks she's just having a game. She insists she's not. Frank makes the horrible mistake of giving it to the stupid, lazy-ass creative writing teacher. He um, proceeds to give it to some other woman. Um, because he's concerned for Eleanor now. He's like, who writes like this? There's something going on. And she specifically... But it's good. He even says it's really oh, yeah. good. It's really good. Um, she specifically uh, references a Sunat, 
which is really weird to me. Susnant? S-U-C-N-A-N-T. It's a super obscure... Sucrant. 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 Sucrant, yes. Yeah, yeah. Super obscure vampire reference. Um, And the thing that's very interesting to me is that it's not even a European vampire reference. Sucreants are actually part of, and this is one of the things with vampires with me. I hate how they have a whole laundry list of things to defeat a vampire. They're susceptible (laughs) to this, to this, to this, and a whole laundry list of special powers they have. I get how that happened because the vampire mythology comes from lots of different cultures and they just like mashed them all together with a big, thing and they're like now there you go so sucreants are actually caribbean based vampire witches yeah so it's really not a european type thing at all but interesting choice of words yeah and here's i'll bring this up and i know it'll probably be touched upon later it was an island so that kind of falls along those lines and the movie's Byzantium, and when you look it up, the only thing that really comes up is the Byzantium Empire, which yes. is gone. And so it, I took it to mean that that island was originally inha- inhabited by people from the Byzantium Empire. And it, this whole growth <laughs> of the vampire religion is from that um, era, that those it's a Byzantine people. era type thing. Yes. And and then, you know, it's just, hey, here's an Easter egg. The name of the hotel happens. So it's almost like they're going full circle and coming around and starting this whole vampire religion again from the hotel because, you know, they go from there. That's an awesome take. Um, I always saw the hotel as being Byzantium uh, because the Byzantium Empire was incredibly powerful and successful. Um, until it wasn't <laughs> right. And, and when it, when it wasn't, it fell. Um, and the same thing happens to the Byzantium empire that Clara has created here. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's um, yeah. True. Uh, so these teachers are worried about her well being, And, um, so they think they might have to get the authorities involved. <laughs> so, Claire, uh, Eleanor gets invited to Frank's birthday and as a gift, she gives him this box and inside the box, it's a little rolled up piece of paper. I don't know that he ever actually unrolls it, but it's pretty clear to me. She's giving him the map to the special secret Island. Yes. Um, if she can't, if she, she has to kill him. She told the story, <laughs> but if not, it's hinting. I have an, an alternative plan. <laughs> yeah. Right. So she gives him that as a gift. The teachers, in the meanwhile, contact the authorities who happen to show up to be Darvell and Savella, who are uh, talking to this um, female member of staff. Now, be- before this, the teacher is interviewing Eleanor. Yes. And they have a very interesting conversation because Eleanor essentially tells the truth, but that she's not believed. Yes, not at all. And there's a scene somewhere in there where Eleanor is playing the piano again. And what she's playing technically amazing. And the fact that she learned to do that in 12 weeks blows my mind. Yeah. She's getting out of rage because it's, it's very fast and aggressive. Yes. I wasn't sure what it was. 
The first one's Beethoven, and you know, if you're familiar with Beethoven, it's kind of lilting kind of stuff. There can be complexities to playing Beethoven, but the other one was it was moving and I was yeah. impressed. Yeah, yeah. Um so the male teacher goes to uh Byzantium to talk to Clara. And uh first Clara thinks he's there looking for a prostitute. Uh when he tells her what's going on, um she proceeds to go into full Clara mode, seduce him, and then kill him. <laughs> yeah, she teases him. Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you know, he's like, this is all ludicrous. And then she's like, um, okay, fine. And then she basically says, but I'm a vampire and you're going to die now. So, and the same thing happened with Eleanor and the female. Basically, is Eleanor's like, cards on the table. This is what I am. And the teacher's like, how am I supposed to believe this? And she's like, when you're old and everything about you hurts and you see me walking down the street, then you're going to know and you'll call for me. So um, they both kind of play into their roles with the two different teachers. Um, just Eleanor's is more of a, I don't want to say a veiled threat, but it's kind of like, you're going to get old. You're going to need me someday. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Not really a threat. She's just almost like tired of dealing with it all. Yes. Um. So when Eleanor shows up, I mean, when yeah, when Eleanor shows up to Byzantium, she and Clara get into it because Clara's like, how could you do this? I'm going to go kill that boy. You know it's going to happen. Noel's like, everyone just calm down. It's going to be fine. Poor little nerd guy. Yeah. Yeah. You see what's coming. <laughs> Eleanor gets in the elevator and rides down. Clara forces the elevator door open, and poor Noel falls into the open elevator shaft and dies. You know, this poor nerd guy's Got this beautiful, super hot, two hundred year old <laughs> <laughs> vampire pimp living in her house. Living in his house, you knew he had to come to some geeky end. <laughs> like I'm going to trip over my feet and fall down this elevator shaft. Yeah, it was very quick. It wasn't even a struggle. Yeah. Um, Clara informs Eleanor that she's going to go kill um, Frank, and that's that. And she leaves. Eleanor reaches up and manages to get um, poor dead Noel's cell phone and bring it down. And this is one of the things that I should have mentioned earlier, but now is as good a time as any. One of the few vampire tropes that they have is that the vampires cannot enter a home unless they're invited in. Oh, yes. That was the one they kept, I noticed. Yeah. Yep. Garlic, sunlight, none of that stuff's an issue. She shows up outside of. Um, Frank's house and uh, he opens the door and he knows right away who she is and um, she's like aren't you going to invite me in he's like no <laughs> why would I do that so, so now he believes yes yeah he had his doubts he thought she was messing with him for the longest time now he knows oh this is a real freaking thing after the map and he's also getting desperate because it sounds like he doesn't have a good prognosis to live. No, he does not. And uh, I point out also the second disease of the movie is another blood disease. Another blood disease. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so Eleanor calls him on the phone saying Claire's coming. And he's like, uh, hello too late. She's here already. Um, 
And then Darvell and Savella show up at Byzantium. And with the Clary, teacher, the female teacher. With the female teacher, Clara hears it. Clara starts making a beeline back to Byzantium. Um Does Savella end up killing the teacher? Uh, not yet, but yeah. Yeah. In the car. Right. So um they manage to get Eleanor out, get her into a car, they start driving along. And um all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Claire is on their windshield. She throws herself at the moving car. She does. Then she punches through the windshield and she's like clawing at Savella. Uh Savella hits the brakes. Um and it's really have you ever seen the Mythbusters where they're like, how easy is it to hang on to a moving car? Have you seen that one? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's next to impossible, right? They slam on the brakes and there is like a pause, like a 20 second pause before she falls off the hood. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you hit the brakes, the person's gone instantly. Physics. It's like, bing, and then she falls <laughs> off. They transferred the energy. Yes. It all stored up and then it like it was like a magnet. <laughs> right. Kinetic and uh potential energy there. Uh so she's lying on the ground, Savella plans to run her over, drives over where she should be, and she's gone. So he gets out of the car, he's chasing after her, she comes out of nowhere, wraps a chain around his neck, and starts doing the whole thing like she was with the Garrett. So obviously they still heal pretty fast. I mean obviously it healed uh sicknesses she just got hit and run over and now she's fighting so yes they, they do seem but again unlike most vampire movies they don't show everything knitting back together and all that right it just seems well and there's none of this super leaping or or you know any of that crazy kind of stuff that you see in bizarro vampire movies that you know the twilights and stuff there's none of that i mean this is a woman with a chain around his neck and her knee in his back and i kept thinking you're not going to pull that through his neck. <laughs> and if you do, I'd be very impressed. Yes. Um, Darnell comes over and intercedes and hangs on to her. Um, and Savella goes and gets a sword out from his trunk. Yeah. And here's your second Byzantium reference. He got it during the Crusades at the fall of Byzantium. Yeah. He presents it to Darnell. Until Darnell, it's his his honor, Darnell's honor to kill this abomination. Now, I wondered with the sword, what if if that's the only connection it really has, or if there's some other mystical connection with the Sucreant that's in the cave on the island? It, it, it left it wide open. I mean, it's like okay, this sword just seems like a normal sword, so who cares? But the name of the movie and where it's from, it just. I, I thought about that for a while, that it's somehow seems like it might be, and it was in a nice case, you know, very well taken yeah. care of. And yeah. So that was unclear. Your theory about the Sucreant and um, the Byzantium empire and all of that really helps this a lot. Yeah. I just figured, because for me, the end of this movie is trash. <laughs> and I just figured this was a holdover from the play and it had meaning in the play. But here the producers are like, ooh, sword, no, use that. And they just threw it back into the script 
uh, you know, for dramatic effect. But be. your theory is a lot better than mine. <laughs> well, that's why there's two of us doing the podcast. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Darnell, of course, ever the gentleman, will, will not kill her. He notes that uh, he does note that uh, Eleanor is wearing the pearl that he presented Clara around her neck on a necklace. So obviously, you know, that pearl he gave her so long ago made an impact. He beheads uh, Savella instead. Yeah. To wrap the movie up, um, he and Clara seem to end up a team. Eleanor comes up to give Clara a hug. And then Clara's like, you're on your own now, kid. You got to grow up sometime. You're 216 years old. You shouldn't be living with your mom. So she kicks yeah. her out of the house. <laughs> Sometimes, you know. But again, you know the the what we were talking about that if they emotionally and that aren't maturing, it still you know fits. So real with that, so you got our Darvell and Clara. So I think the sequel is going to be like a buddy cop movie. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I'm that's sure right. that's exactly what they're planning. You can't cage me in, Darvell. Um, and then. Uh, Eleanor takes poor Frank out to the islands and he proceeds to join her in the vampiric eternity, which is their bizarre afterlife. Right. So uh, now and, the aber- 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 aberration created an aberration. Correct. And, and then here's my other question. So we've only seen a few members of this society and the only one left that we've seen is Darvell, but they're still on the run. So obviously there's many, many more elsewhere. Darvell says, as they're walking away, Clara's like, are they going to come after us? And Darvell says, the brotherhood is strong. Yeah. So it hints at, oh, there's plenty more where yeah. this came from. Um. So th- that's the movie. Um. People who will like this, you showed me there's actually a fan page for this. Yeah, this obscure wiki. 2012 movie, which just goes to show that vampires sell. Yeah. I mean, there are people who are dedicated to vampires. They're into this. Um, and again, for me, I don't even like vampire movies. And saying that, I went through the list of projected movies for this season. Three of them are vampire movies. <laughs> so We must just be getting all the good ones out of the way, I guess. Um, yeah, so if you like vampire movies, stay with season one. After that, who knows? Yeah, you're not going to hear about much. Um, but uh, you know, that's what I loved about this, was that you didn't have the whole... Yeah, there was this hint of a secret society and everything, but it was not so prevalent. Like, Interview with a Vampire. That's like the whole thing. There's just vampires everywhere. And yeah... That's always been my issue with vampires. They try and force them into the mainstream, and it's like there's no way that would exist yeah, at all. Um, for me, the movie falls apart at the end uh, based on two points. Uh, the first of which is they've gone through this whole movie talking about how you can be born with a silver spoon in your mouth, and that's going to pay dividends for the rest of your eternal life. Just yeah. like... Darvell, or, or even <laughs> even Ruthven, a horrible person, but because he was someone of class and wealth, he was a captain, and he was a, was promoted to captain of Her Majesty's Navy. He could do anything he wanted. 
the lower classes, the Claras, get stepped on constantly. They just get absconded with and turned into prostitutes if, you know, that's what the wealthy people want to do. So they have that theme. And then there's the whole theme of, of the patriarchy, right? Because the brotherhood is a brotherhood. There are no women. And they have rules. And you're going to listen to them, you useless harlot. What have you done with all your time? We're not going to help you. We don't even want to see you. And then in the end, she still can't defeat the patriarchy on her own. She has to be rescued by a man. Uh, that's true. I didn't even catch that. Yeah. And it just seems like such a miss for me. Uh, for yeah. me, she would have killed Savella and she would have let Darvell live just out of her, you know what? You did me a solid once and I'm going to let this one slide. And that, that would have right. been the perfect ending to this movie. You're right. And it's kind of the same issue I said with The Last House on the Left, the, the remake, that it felt like the mother should have been the major one killing everybody. But they, they, they set it up for that. It was perfect for that. And then the dad did most of it. And I was like, well, that kind of made it suck. Yeah. This, you're right. This is kind of the same thing. If you're going to bring those out, and that makes this a very modern movie with all the uh, things going on in our, our culture with uh, women's rights and feminists still, even to this day, and women showing a lot of strong women in stories, in the movies. It's a big push right now. And this movie, even though it's several years old, fits that very well. And you're right, that kind of backs off on it. At the yeah, very they end. really stumbled at, right, at the, right at the end zone. They just completely dropped the ball. The other problem is a plot point issue for me. Eleanor takes Frank to the island and takes him down into the thing. If this happened once, 200 years ago, why doesn't the Brotherhood have somebody watching the island? <laughs> Which, okay, the only thing I would say against that is, if this is religious, quasi-religious, like we were saying, there probably could be a religious reason not to be on the island. Or maybe, you know, the Sucreant would kill anyone that's left on the island and they can't leave anyone. I mean, there could be. They don't show it in the movie. Right. Uh, but you could argue it at least philosophically. That being said, I love the movie. Those yeah. are just the two things that, and it only comes up at the end because yeah. you know, the first time when Clara goes, well, she's the first, of course she can sneak in. Cause the vampires are like, no one's ever going to find this place, but she does. Cause she's got the map. And then she goes and makes an abomination herself. So from that point on, you would want somebody guarding it. And then yeah. at the end, when Eleanor shows up and there's nobody there, they just walk right in. I'm like, yeah, that seems a little weak. But well, yeah. it, it also could show the ego. You know, we're all powerful. We we nobody can defeat us. And suddenly there's this woman putting a cog in the or a wrench yes. in the cogs and messing things up. The hubris. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, but uh, other than that, I just love this film. It's beautifully done. Um, it actually did win some awards. It was nominated for about seven or so. Um, it won two, um, and they were IFTAs, which are basically the Irish version of the BAFTAs, okay. which is the British version of the Oscars, if you want to tie all that stuff back. Um, and I also love how van how horror movies, and our next movie, we'll talk about this more, horror movies makes very strange bedfellows. So here you have a British playwright who does a screenplay for an Irish director 
who gets funded with Irish public funds and shoots a movie in England, set in <laughs> England, and then it gets released everywhere in the United States. Um, so it makes these really weird pairings. We mentioned it during Martyrs because um, the guy who did Martyrs, you know, that was even a French Canadian pairing. Yeah. Uh, he did when he did St. Ange, he did it in French and English because it was happening in Belgium. Yeah, and the next one's got similar things with council. Yes, two Absolutely. two things I was going to mention. Also, uh, we talked about the song they sang uh, earlier in the movie. Later in the movie, they sing another, which sounds like a folk song, hymn, or whatever. And that one has to do with blood. So mm. again, the whole blood theme. Uh, and then one thing they say that Eleanor says, and I think I hear Darvell also bring it up uh, basically eternal life comes to those who are ready to die. And, and that's got a double meaning uh, because Eleanor is giving these older people eternal life going to heaven. Uh, yeah. But Darvell and for all of them, if you're ready to die, then the Sucreant will take you and you'll become a vampire. Yeah. And it's interesting it, how the vampires can't create our vampires. Only the Sucreant can do that. Right. Yeah, it's another vampire trope that they kind of broke. Yeah. Um, I had mentioned to you that for the first, this is our third movie? Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah for I think. Our first th third movie, all of our friends, our pairing friends, have all had the same kind of stereotypes. You have the one who's all about getting everything done, and yeah. then you have the other one who's all about, you know, kind of like the dream. Um so in this case, you had Clara, who was all about getting everything done. You had Eleanor, who was all about, you know, being the kindly angel of death to people. And in the battery, you had Mickey, who was all about, I just want life to be what it was. And you had Ben, who was all about, we're going to survive. And then um, you had the same thing in um, Martyrs, because you had the one girl who was all about, I'm going to get vengeance on these people. Then you had the other one who walked around and just took care of her the whole time. Yeah, And all three of them end up the world changes for them they, yes. their relationship doesn't stay the same and everything in their world changes yeah and that theme is about to change <laughs> because the movies that come after this um you know uh, i think the next one you'd be hard-pressed to make that argument yeah in the next movie Agreed. and um and i i know in in the ones following because I've been watching ahead. Uh, oh, it, oh. it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't come up again, but these first three, definitely similar themes, similar character archetypes through the whole thing. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the next one definitely is different. I think this is going to be the first one. We get some uh, disagreement on some things uh, and our feelings on it. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, I, I suppose. I, I don't think it's going to be as heady of a no. disagreement as you think. No. But. <laughs> We're not going to be screaming and throwing things. Right. We never have. It'll be a good discussion. So, all right. I think that covers it for Byzantium. Good movie to go see. If you oh, go absolutely. It, it, it's, it's not impossible to find. No, it, it was one of the easier ones <laughs> for us to find. Yep. So, cool. All right, man. Then we'll talk next time. And a uh, little hint, that's the triangle. Awesome. The creature slips from perception. Pay attention. It will rise again.